This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. song lift every voice what they call the national the black national anthem put that discussion aside so today is um the birthday of uh, my friend danielle hoffman knee johnson and we've talked about danielle before she's a close friend she and her husband rich and um she gave her kidney away to a co-worker which i thought was very nice she's a she's a free spirit she's a lot of fun and uh, a good person hardworking, very involved civically and so she, uh, it's her birthday today. So happy birthday, Danielle. And she sent me a list of bumper music song selections that she was hoping to play. And she said, all right, you got this song, that song, this song. But she said, any of those would be great. But this is a quote from Danielle Hoffman. But Call Me Maybe is my national anthem. I mean, that's... That's the most bizarre thing that I've ever heard. You can admit, I mean, it's, I have nothing against this song. It's catchy. Um, but, I mean, if you listen to the lyrics, if you listen to what they're singing about, and you take a grown woman that says this is her national anthem, I mean, I think Freud would have a field day with her. My goodness. Well... Uh, I have been really eager uh, to talk with Spencer Clavin for a, a long time. Uh, Spencer Clavin is a very bright guy. He is uh, someone who is a, a PhD from Oxford. He also happens to be the uh, associate editor at the Claremont Institute. He's a podcaster for the Daily Wire. And if people recognize that name, Clavin, perhaps it's because of his father, Andrew Clavin, who's a distinguished podcaster in his own right. Or maybe if you're a New York radio listener, you might remember the legendary Gene Clavin. I'm Paul McElroy at the editor's desk, Charles Finley. Next, from WOR, the heart of New York, Gene Clavin. What do you think, folks? Was that a, wasn't that good? Didn't Paul do a nice job? Okay, well, we're putting, you know, we're grading each of our newscasts today because uh, we, by the end of the month, we have to see whether the Wilson Siebert Award is going to be awarded to Paul. Of course, Paul's got so many awards already. And I don't know if, what your picture of him is, but he's, 
a marvelously contemporary person. He wanders around here with his gold medallion and that open-necked shirt down to his navel. He's kind of a, he's a fun person. Well, uh, Gene Clavin, whether it was on Clavin and Finch or any of his, any of his solo endeavors, I don't know that he spent very much time talking about how to save Western civilization. Thankfully, the Clavin line continues so that they can get around to explaining to us how to do it. Spencer, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Thank you so much for having me. And man, what a treat to hear that uh, voice from the past, my my grandfather. That's incredible. So, Spencer, did you uh, did you know your grandfather? I did. Uh, we were we were quite close while while he was alive. So that was that was very touching. Did the fact that he built such an, an incredible career in the field of radio did that influence your uh, chosen path to at least? I mean, you do a lot of different things, but at least a big part of what you do is you have this very popular podcast. Did that influence your decision at all? I think so. I mean, I think we're all influenced by our ancestors in a way that we're maybe not used to admitting in the modern day. But I like to joke that my voice is the only family heirloom. Every man (laughs) in my family sounds basically exactly the same. You can't tell us apart when we pick up the phone. And I have a picture, actually, of Gene Clavin in the studio up here in my office so i'm very conscious of that as something that, oh, well that's pretty uh, that neat runs in my past. and that's yeah. pretty neat and, and you and i haven't spoken before but i know your dad a little bit and uh, and you sound just like him so uh, it's uh, i i would <laughs> i would definitely agree with your characterization all right congratulations on the new book i know it's out today how to save the west ancient wisdom for five modern crises Let's get into uh, why the West needs saving. Uh, I have always been fond of Western civilization, and I think it's contributed a great deal to the world. W- are we really in danger? I know uh, Pat Buchanan wrote that book, Death of the West, and uh, a lot of people have been concerned through uh, for a whole host of reasons that the West might be on the decline, maybe not so much as the Roman Empire was, but not necessarily that far off. Why does the West need saving? Yeah, I mean, of course, there are plenty who will dismiss this as just conservative fear-mongering. But this is a book that is based on the radical idea that the past has something to say to the present. And it's amazing how out of fashion that idea is. You know, you hear so much these days that the great texts of Athens and Jerusalem, these treasures that come down to us uh, through our traditions, that they're backwards, they're superstitious, they're out of date, even maybe they're racist and sexist and colonialist, any name they can throw at this stuff, uh, they will throw at it. And I was lucky that I grew up surrounded by these great works. And what I realized is that that meant I was surrounded by friends. Um, and, and so I knew very early on that this whole narrative uh, that the Western tradition is somehow wrong or it's not necessary, um, that, was, that was just simply ridiculous. It was designed to keep you from finding out um, what, what, what treasures these works are. And so if, does the West need saving? I would argue yes, absolutely. At this moment, especially when we're up against really fundamental questions, things like what's our place in the universe? Uh, what's a human being and why are we different from machines? Um, Those are questions that have been around basically for as long as humanity has existed, and the great minds of our tradition have wrestled with them and come up with deep, profound answers, answers that are saner than what you'll get from 
our modern gurus. Um, and what that means is we're not alone. I wrote the book because I wanted people to have access to this tradition and to uh, meet some of these minds that can help us uh, to find our way forward in a confusing time. Okay, before we get into what these crises are and what the solutions might be to some of them, uh, and we're talking with Spencer Clavin, he's the author of the book How to Save the West, you have studied uh, the classics for many years, as you alluded to. I know on your podcast you've spent a lot of time talking about uh, Dante and uh, going through his circles of hell and the afterlife. Really interesting content uh, on there, by the way, which I do recommend. Who is your favorite classical author? Is it Dante? It's a great question, and you know, I think a lot of times it depends, varying on you know what just uh, what what's most on my mind at the moment. Each problem brings up different issues, and and each author kind of has different virtues. But if there's one person from antiquity that I just feel like is hovering over my shoulder, uh, it's actually someone from even further back than. Dante, it's Aristotle, the great Greek philosopher. And, and, and the reason for that is, you know, there were, of course, great philosophers before Aristotle. There was Socrates and Plato, names that we all know. Um, but it was Aristotle who really crystallized this idea that um, there is more to the world than just matter. We're not just bodies. We also have uh, souls. And yet our souls are embodied. We live in the world in the here and now. Um, in the digital era, it's really easy to think that we can just kind of float up into some sort of disembodied space, the cloud, just live on Zoom, uh, just live through lockdown and go on your computer. Um, But Aristotle brings us back to the the truth uh, that what we are as human beings is uh, souls in bodies, spirits that are expressed uh, through the flesh, through the here and now. And I think that's so important right now. So I'm not going to ask you to necessarily go through all five of these crises, but give us some of these crises that you think uh, could spell big trouble for the West if they're not addressed. Yeah, the questions that I raise in the book uh, have to do, like I said, with these fundamental issues. The first one is called the crisis of reality, and that's just, is there anything that's true or false? Absolutely, whether uh, anybody says so or not, or is it all relativism, all just my truth and your truth? Uh, I think that's a really crucial one. Um, The crisis of meaning, which is the question, you know, whether there's anything beyond just our kind of uh, scientific world of um, you know, of, of just mere evolution and, and matter. Um, that's crucial in this moment. And, and maybe the, the central one, the most profound one, is the crisis of religion. Can we still believe in God, even in a world that seems to have been remade by science? Um, I'm drawing on the traditions in this book to argue that, yes, we actually can, and not only can we, we, we need to. Um, and I think that's maybe the most urgent one, um, which we get to kind of in the middle of the book, uh, is, is can we believe? So when we talk about these five crises that the that the West is facing, reality, the body, meaning, religion, and what you term the crisis of regime. What can we learn from these uh, ancient authors of old? What wisdom would apply to the 21st century to help us through some of these? Yeah, uh, it's interesting because when you think about what we're supposed to do, especially when everything feels like the problems are just so big, um, it can feel like the uh, this, this kind of despair sets in, right? There's just, uh, 
everything is so, as they say, systemic um, that it's hard to know what to do. And the answers can feel too simple. Uh, it can feel like, well, you know, there's really not so much that I as an individual can do. But the truth is, as you study this stuff more and more, you realize the simplest things are often the most profound. They're what you arrive at after the longest and deepest thought. That's the first thing is that you're not uh, too small. You're not too simple to actually be involved in the solution to these civilizational problems. And then the second thing, which I draw on in that crisis regime section, um, is this notion in Greek of what's called philia, politike philia, and that's love, civic friendship, uh, neighborliness, connection, and the here and now face-to-face, these personal relationships um, in an age when we're being divided against one another by identity politics, when we are being taught to think of one another in terms of abstractions, um, like, you know, systemic racism, or this guy is inherently oppressive uh, because of this, that, and the other. Um, It's the real-life connections that we make in our local communities, in our school boards, in our churches, in our neighborhoods, these sorts of things uh, which are recovered in the ancient tradition um, that still can stand us in good stead and help us to rebuild some of our institutions, which we sorely need. Is it your view that uh, society, obviously a lot of the wisdom that you're drawing upon has been around for millennia, is it your view that Western civilization has ignored, um, you know, the wisdom of the ancients for um, the most recent history, or have we um, always been, uh, always been um, utilizing some of this, but now we're finally at a point where we're not utilizing it. What what role has the wisdom of people like Aristotle played in forming modern history, and wh- where is that wisdom today? Well, at the beginning of the book, I quote this passage from Tacitus, the great Roman imperial historian, uh, and Tacitus has somebody say, you know, <laughs> humanity is always uh, hating on the present, basically. We always mm. wish we were in the golden age of the right, past. Right. And, and so there's obviously some amount of this that's just baked in. Um, and you could say, well, maybe we're just always kind of nostalgic for a, a golden age gone by. Um, but there is another dimension of this, too, that answers your question. Um, something especially that has happened in the last hundred years or so, um, the paleontologist G.G. Simpson said something to the effect that, you know, every good answer to every question was basically thought up after Charles Darwin. And before that, everything is obsolete. All of these kind of old fashioned sheep herders, goat herders from uh, the Stone Age. And, you know, I'm I'm uh, no critic of uh, evolution per se or science per se. Um, but that idea, I think, is really wrong and has really cut us off from the sources of our ancestral wisdom. This idea that science is not just a good thing, but a totalizing explanation for all of reality. Everything can be boiled down to into equations, um, into facts and figures, nothing that can be uh, that can't be measured is real. Um, we know these things aren't true. We know there's more to life uh, than just physical science, just materialism. We have uh, souls as well as bodies. The human part is real, and the things, the truths that it accesses do exist. Um, and so, if anything, I think in this book, I'm trying to recover people's connection, ownership over um, those deeper truths that go uh, beyond just the truths of, of materialism. And I do think that uh, uniquely in our age, we've been trained to ignore that. 
I, I heard I, uh, you mentioned Charles Darwin. I understand it was Darwin's birthday recently. Happy birthday to uh, him and everybody that's celebrating yep. Darwin Day. Uh, you, you talk about the need for people to make connections with one another, whether it's in modern society or uh, back thousands of years ago. But you are a little bit tough on uh, social media, including uh, the uh, n- biggest one that uh, that people plug into these days, Facebook. Why? If social media is something that can help people connect with one another, and you're saying that connection is one of the things that can help society avoid uh, some of these crises, why are you so tough on social media? That's a great question. I mean, I I do argue uh, something which actually, obviously, social media wasn't around in the ancient world, but this is something that I do draw, the principle is something I draw from antiquity, um, is that everything human has a a good side and a bad side. Um, And technology is no exception. And in fact, one of the things that we find argued in in political philosophy is that the things that are noblest in nature become worst when they fall. Um, And so human connection, of course, is a good thing. It's a crucial thing. Um, But there are also programs that have been written um, by our kind of overlords in, in big tech that are avowedly designed to hack into our impulse to connect, to gamify it, um, to sort of suck it dry of all of its, uh, you know, all of its, all of its humanity, and uh, turn it into a question of, of metrics and abstractions. And and so it's not that we can't use this technology well. It's not that we can't um, think carefully about how to enhance our lives with uh, even social media. Uh, it's just that it does require some thought, and it means rooting everything we do first and foremost in our embodied human life. The stuff that came first um, is living in in real world and in physical space. Um, And then we can build outward from there to add on our tech. But it can't become the center of our lives because then, like anything that uh, is taken to excess, it, it will corrupt us and it will become corrupted itself. You spend some time talking about Plato and one of his most infamous ideas, which is that art has political power. Tell me where you view art in modern society today, the political power that's in the art world, and what that means in terms of uh, avoiding some of these five crises that you're trying to avoid. Yeah, this is a perfect example of that idea that I was just talking about. The things which are good, that have value for us, um, can become dangerous precisely because of how valuable they are, because because of how uh, attractive they are to us inherently. Um in Plato, there is this idea, and I'm paraphrasing him here, but I think this is a true uh, articulation of what he's saying. I think it's a powerful thought um, that art is weapons grade emotion. Uh, it's a distillation of our kind of emotional reaction to the world. Um, in, in Greek, the word is mimesis, that it kind of reproduces or represents um, the inner life of, of humanity. And famously, as you say, infamously in the Republic, uh, Plato's Socrates says, this is such a powerful tool that we just can't let it into our perfect state at all. Now, I think he's being uh, tongue-in-cheek to a certain extent, but he's forcing this thing to the extreme to show you what we're reckoning with here, uh, to show you that it's not just a kind of plaything, it's not just an entertainment, um, it's actually something to be handled with enormous care. And whether we admit it or not, we believe this too in our society, and that's why we have what we call our culture wars. I write a lot in the book about uh, the passion with which both sides, conservatives and liberals, approach what should be 
shown on Netflix, what should be honored at the Oscars. Um, and the reason that we care so much about that is because we know art is more than a plaything. Um, it's something that molds our soul, that educates and teaches us. Uh, Cicero said of rhetoric that it can move, delight, and instruct. Moere, uh, docere, delectare. All three of these things are always part of uh, our artistic endeavor. And that means we should uh, care as a society about what art gets honored um, and what kind of truths or falsehoods it's telling about uh, the good. It, it needs to be leading us to something more uh, than just pleasure. It needs to be leading us to those higher moral truths. You um, obviously spend a lot of time focusing on faith in the book. What role do you think faith has in the future of the West? We've seen a tremendous decline in people that attend church or any organized religious service uh, over the years, not just in the United States, but in, in Europe as well. What do you think that portends for the future of the West? Well, there is no getting around this one. And I kind of feel like when I talk about this, like, I wish I could get around it, you know, because everybody immediately will begin to say, oh, you're forcing your religion down down my throat. You're, uh, you know, trying to impose some kind of state religion. And uh, I agree, as everybody, uh, I think, does in some level, that in this country, we have a, a good and righteous protection um, from state-imposed sects, from the state coming in and telling you you have to. Um, be part of this or that church. Um, and, you know, I personally belong to a, a particular church. I think it would be great if everybody joined it tomorrow in the entire world. Um, but that's not really what I'm arguing in this book. What I'm saying here is is something else. Um, in the Bible, there is a line from the Psalms, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Um, and when we read that, I think for a long time, I read that line and just thought, oh, this is kind of just a dig at atheists. It's like atheists are dumb, basically, would be a modern translation of this line. And that's kind of a funny way of, of putting it. But I think the line is saying something much deeper than that. Um, in, in the Psalms, what we get is um, this truism that if you believe you are an atheist, if you believe you have no God, you believe you don't worship, um, you're fooling yourself. You're making a fool out of yourself and deceiving yourself because everybody already has something they put in the position of highest good. Just by waking up in the morning, uh, getting out of bed, we do things because we want stuff and we want things because of what we believe to be good, some benefit that we believe we'll get. Uh, the Greeks talked about this in terms of telos, the goal or the final cause. And since we all have one or several causes for what we do, um, it implies that we have an ultimate thing that we believe is good in itself, the thing to which we will ultimately bend the knee, what we'll put in the position of highest authority. And if we tell ourselves we're not doing that, um, we won't stop worshiping. We'll just worship without realizing it and worship under other names. And we've seen this, I think, uh, in great evidence throughout the summer of 2020 when people kneeled, Black Lives Matter rallies, and uh, begged for absolute for forgiveness. People said that you needed to trust capital T.S. the science and believe in Dr. Fauci, who represented the science as if you were its priest. Um, again, it's not as if science is bad. Science is a good thing, a tool for humanity to learn about the physical world. But when we start talking about it in these occult, cultic terms, there's something else going on than just knowledge production. That's worship. That's the human heart needing something to bow down to. And so what I'm arguing in the book is 
simply that we ought to be aware of this. We ought to realize that everybody is worshiping. And then we ought to turn to the tradition and ask, what's worthy of our worship? What or whom can we worship uh, that will not enslave us, but will set us free? There is somebody that will set us free if we worship him, but spoiler alert, it's not Anthony Fauci. Um, and the God whom uh, we who really is worthy of, of that worship is to be found in the scripture and the wisdom texts of Athens and Jerusalem, especially uh, the Judeo-Christian scriptures. The there uh, We're talking with Spencer Clavin. His book is How to Save the West. It's out today. Check it out. There is certainly an irony in you, a Christian who's preaching, um, you know, Judeo-Christian values, also at the same time saying that we should go back and listen to the wisdom of a bunch of pagan authors, Plato, Aristotle, a lot of these other folks were anything but monotheistic. How do you reconcile that dichotomy? Uh, Yeah, you and I are not the first people to worry about this question. Uh, Tertullian, very early on, has this famous line, what hath Athens to do with Jerusalem? And ever since, this has stood as a challenge to people like me who want to say that both strains of this tradition are worthy or worthwhile, deserve our attention. Um, But there is another line of Christian thought, and it's the one I subscribe to, which says, you know, in John, the first chapter of John's Gospel, um, it's said that through him all things were made, and without him not one thing was made that was made. Um, And so whatsoever things are true, lovely, and of good report, anything that has been discovered that is recognizably true in in human history, um, anywhere uh, that is absolutely true, that truth belongs to God, for God is master of the whole world. And what's really interesting uh, when you understand that is when you read these pagan philosophers, guys like Aristotle and Plato, um, who lived in polytheistic societies, um, almost all of them uh, who thought deeply about this question ended up trending toward a kind of monotheism. Um, you get this in Plato's Timaeus. You get this in many of Aristotle's works and in the Euthyphro, where Socrates is kind of wrestling um, with the problems inherent in polytheism. If you have multiple gods, you have multiple competing goods, you're torn uh, in a universe that doesn't actually have a, a, a moral center, any moral absolute. Um, and so all of these guys were leaning more and more toward some kind of uh, absolute god, uh, the demiurge, as he's described in, in the Timaeus. Um, and so what you see is uh, over the course of these traditions, these eternal truths that are uh, shared among all humanity start to emerge as common uh, to the whole tradition, even though these texts come from very very different times and places. If uh, people have not seen your Young Heretics videos before, explain explain to folks what this is and uh, what your focus is in these videos. Sure. This was a podcast series of videos that I began um, simply because I, I wanted to share with people the things that I had always benefited from. I, I thought that, you know, I was really lucky to grow up in a house full of books. Uh, I had to learn over time that that wasn't normal, that uh, I was uh, blessed in this way. Um, and once I did learn that, as I went through my education, I really started to feel strongly that people were being denied access to their inheritance, that there was this treasure house of wisdom that comes down to us. It's not just uh, dusty, dry old tomes. It's not backwards, prejudiced, dead guys. Um, it's actually uh, uh, wisdom for you and for me about what the best way is uh, to seek excellence at being human. Uh, that's for everybody. And one of the first things I learned as I started to put this stuff out into the Internet um, is that there really is a hunger for it. People were messaging me saying things like, you know, I'm on my tractor and I'm listening to you talk about Aristotle and I feel actually enriched. I, I don't feel bored. Um, and the more I heard that, the more I realized there really is 
something here. Um, the classical education uh, that we, many of us, were denied growing up is still on offer. And this is one way in which, you know, here's a good side of tech. Here's something I can be really positive about when it comes to technology. Uh, we would never have been able to reach out and communicate to one another in quite this way before. Um, now we can, and it has become my life's mission. It's why I did the Young Heretics podcast, and it's also why I wrote this book. Spencer, best of luck with with the book. I appreciate the time. Uh, I'll look forward to chatting again soon and hope everybody checks out uh, youngheretics.com and uh, the new book, How to Save the West. Appreciate it, Spencer. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.